China surprised the world this March with an incredible announcement. It had helped to negotiate peace between Saudi Arabia and Iran. These are two countries in West Asia, the so-called Middle East, that did not even have formal diplomatic relations for seven years. They were basically at war with each other, and the United States had been pressuring Saudi Arabia to join it in its so-called maximum pressure campaign against Iran, which really amounts to a kind of hybrid war or unconventional war against Iran. Now, Saudi Arabia and Iran have signed peace talks, and China is talking about further helping to integrate Asia and especially working toward increasing their economic ties. And today I'm going to talk about how this can be a geopolitical game changer. And not only in terms of helping to bring peace to, the, to West Asia, the so-called Middle East, which is a region that has suffered from constant U.S. wars and destabilization and intervention, but even more significantly, in my view, is what this means for oil and specifically the petrodollar. Since the 1970s, the vast majority of oil in the global market has been sold in U.S. dollars. And this has been one of the ways in which the U.S. has been able to maintain the hegemony of the U.S. dollar after removing its links to gold in 1971 with the Richard Nixon shock. And the way that the U.S. pressured Saudi Arabia to sell oil around the world in dollars was a way that the U.S. could maintain economic hegemony. But now we've seen that China, Iran, and Saudi Arabia are all countries that have talked about selling oil in other currencies, not only the Chinese currency, the renminbi, but, but other currencies as a way of challenging the hegemony of the U.S. dollar and U.S. economic imperialism. Now, in addition to the massive economic repercussions of this deal, we can also see that this is part of the global drive toward multipolarity. And of course, China is one of the founding members of the BRICS system, that is Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And both Iran and Saudi Arabia have formally applied to join the BRICS bloc. That means that now that Iran and Saudi Arabia have formal diplomatic relations, I don't expect them to be friends with each other, but as long as they're not at war with each other, this means that they can, they can be integrated into the BRICS. The BRICS bloc can be expanded. Iran has already become a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization as well. This includes China, Russia, India, Pakistan, Central Asian states. It represents more than 40% of the global population and more than one third of the world's GDP. And in addition to Iran joining, Saudi Arabia is an official dialogue partner of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and has expressed interest in joining as well. So what this all shows is that China is helping to facilitate unity all across Asia. This has sometimes re been referred to as Eurasian integration because Russia's involved. But as we see with the proxy war in Ukraine, Russia has been basically kicked out of Europe. So I, I think it's a much more accurate way to, of describing it as Asian integration. And we see that China is at the heart of this, encouraging this so that they can, there can be stability all across Asia. So economically, they can develop together and integrate and challenge the hegemony of the U.S. and Europe that have dominated the global economy since the rise of European colonialism. Now, in a lot of the analysis that I've seen in the media discussing the normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran, 
There's been a lot of discussion of what this means for the region itself, but very little discussion of what I think is the most important factor, which is energy, oil and gas. It goes without saying that Saudi Arabia for decades has been one of the world's largest producers of oil. It is consistently among the top three largest producers, along with the US and Russia. And Brazil and Iran are also consistently within the top 10 largest producers of oil in the world. Now, Brazil and Russia and China, which is also consistently in the top uh, 10 producers of oil in the world, currently it's number five. Brazil, Russia, and China are already part of the BRIC system. If Iran and Saudi Arabia also join the BRICS, and Iraq has expressed interest in the BRICS as well, that means that more than half of, of the top 10 largest oil producers in the world are going to be part, become part of the BRICS block. Furthermore, Saudi Arabia is the de facto leader of OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, which basically controls the price of oil on the global market. And Russia is part of the extended OPEC plus alliance. So that means that if Saudi Arabia and Iran can join the BRICS, the BRICS is basically be, be going to become a larger affiliate of OPEC. And that means that the global commodities markets are going to be basically determined by the BRICS system. Because not only are they energy powerhouses, but these are countries that pr also produce other minerals. In the case of Brazil, Brazil is one of the world's largest producers of iron ore. So it, we're talking about BRICS becoming the world commodities superpower. And it, BRICS is already discussing ways to do trade in new currencies. And South Africa has revealed that BRICS is working on creating a new global reserve currency to get off the US dollar. So what this means is that BRICS could very soon be challenging the, the dollar in global trade and could fundamentally not only unseat the petrodollar itself, but simply the hegemony of the US dollar as the global reserve currency and the currency used in around 80% of international trade. So let's look at the official declaration from the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They published a press release on March 10th that announced that the top Chinese diplomat Wang Yi had shared a meeting in Beijing of peace talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran and they were successful. Now, this is very important because there had been attempts at holding peace talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran previously in Iraq, and they failed largely because the US government under Donald Trump murdered the top Iranian official Qasem Soleimani, who had been overseeing those peace talks in Iraq. So those peace talks failed because the US sabotaged them. And these peace talks sponsored by China in Beijing, in which the US was not even involved in any way, represents this new multipolar world we're in, where the US is no longer the world's global hegemon, where it decides what's gonna happen all around the world. China is helping to negotiate peace in West Asia and other regions, and they don't want the US to be meddling and to be involved in destroying and sabotaging these, these peace processes. Now, if you look at what the Chinese foreign ministry said, they, they made a very important comment that China is a reliable friend of both Saudi Arabia and Iran. That is important because it shows that Saudi Arabia doesn't want to have to choose between one of these two powers. The US was trying to force 
uh, Iran into the camp of China and Russia and, and to maintain Saudi Arabia in, in, in its camp, the U.S. has been trying to divide up the world into bipolar blocks as part of a new Cold War, forcing countries to pick a side. And Iran, of course, is under illegal U.S. sanctions and has been since the Iranian Revolution in 1979. But Saudi Arabia has historically been a U.S. ally, yet we see in the past few years that Saudi Arabia has been looking toward the east and is now maintaining basically non-aligned policies, basically as part of the non-aligned movement. Saudi Arabia is balancing the West against the so-called East. And this is yet another example of this. And now China doesn't have to choose one or the other. China can be an ally of both of them. Now, Wang Yi, the top Chinese diplomat, said, the improvement of relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran has paved the way for realizing peace and stability in the Middle East. And this is a, a really important quote. And he's clearly referencing the, the history of US and European meddling in this region. He says, China supports countries in the Middle East in upholding strategic autonomy, strengthening solidarity and cooperation, getting rid of external interference, and really holding the future of the Middle East in their own hands. So in a diplomatic way, that is China referencing obliquely the very recent history of constant U.S. wars, destabilizing the region, invading countries. The U.S. military is still occupying Syria, the large oil reserves and wheat, wheat areas in Syria, preventing the Syrian government from getting revenue from oil that it needs to rebuild the country after a decade of proxy war. This is a, a proxy war that was fueled by the conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran, with Saudi Arabia supporting Salafi jihadist rebels fighting, backed by the CIA, fighting against the Syrian government, and Iran supporting the Syrian government. So now China has come in and helped to negotiate peace and said, look, you all should maintain stability in this region. We don't want to destabilize the region, unlike the United States, which has destabilized this region for for decades. And before that, European colonial powers colonized the, this, this region, going back to, to Sykes-Picot, the agreement in World War I when the European colonial powers carved up the former Ottoman Empire and France and, Germ and, France and Britain handed themselves on a map. They, they picked what regions of West Asia they would like to colonize. So this is China saying that this region is sovereign and we, we need no more external interference. We need peace and stability and development. Now, in its press release, the Chinese foreign ministry didn't mention energy, but clearly that is one of the most important factors in this peace deal. And for a decade now, China has been the largest purchaser of energy from West Asia, not the United States. A decade ago, China replaced the United States and China is the largest trading partner for Saudi Arabia and China is the largest importer of oil in the entire world. Now, in addition to oil, gas is increasingly important as a global source of energy. And of course, the Persian Gulf region is one of the world's largest producers of gas. The U.S. is the world's biggest producer of gas, but also Russia is the second biggest and Iran is the third biggest. 
And Iran, uh, China is Iran's largest trading partner, in addition to being Saudi Arabia's largest trading partner. And China is one of the world's largest importer of gas as well, especially liquefied natural gas. And Qatar is tied with the United States as the world's biggest producer and exporter of liquefied natural gas. So once again, we see that Asia economically is integrating and becoming increasingly uh, you know, autonomous economically. They don't need the meddling in the input of the West. China gets more than one third of its energy resources already from, from West Asia, from specifically from the Persian Gulf region. And as Asia economically integrates, the countries in the region are saying, why do we continue doing trade with each other with US dollars? It doesn't make sense. Why would China and Saudi Arabia, which have their own separate currencies, why would they use the US dollar? Why wouldn't they use their own currencies? And increasingly, we see that's exactly what they're doing. I have a separate report on, about this that I will link into in the description below, in which I talked about BRICS developing its own new currency for international trade and a reserve currency, and Saudi Arabia announcing that it's going to be considering selling its oil in other currencies. This is a key part of this agreement. And you can be clear that when China was negotiating these peace talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran, it was one of the key things they were thinking about. Now, obviously, it's not the only factor, but it's one that I have not seen discussed enough in the media, and it needs to be emphasized. To understand just how significant this is, we should understand the history briefly of the petrodollar. And this was spelled out very clearly in an article published in Bloomberg in 2016 titled The Untold Story Behind Saudi Arabia's 41-Year U.S. Debt Secret. And it explains how in 1974, the Richard Nixon administration's Treasury Secretary was sent to Riyadh to discuss with Saudi Arabia a way to make a deal where the U.S. would provide Saudi Arabia protection and military support. And in turn, Riyadh would sell its oil on the global market in the dollar. Now, this was important for a few reasons. One, because in 1971, Richard Nixon took the U.S. dollar off of gold, ending the gold standard. And that changed the policy that had been the global standard since 1944 in the Bretton Woods Conference, in which the U.S. dollar was made the global reserve currency. However, the U.S. dollar was pegged to gold at a set value of $35 per troy ounce of gold. That meant that from 1944 until 1971, the U.S. dollar was as good as gold. It was basically paper gold because anyone who had dollars could exchange that, that, those dollars for gold. But as The Economist Michael Hudson exposed in his book Super Imperialism, the U.S. was running a balance of payments deficit ever since the Korean War, and then especially with the Vietnam War, the U.S. was spending so much money waging war that it was depleting its gold reserves. And countries like France were exchanging all of their dollars for gold. So the U.S. was running out of gold, and there, were, there was much more, uh, there was a much larger supply of dollars in the world than there was gold in the U.S. Ex uh, foreign exchange reserves. So what happened? Richard Nixon in 1971 took the dollar off of gold and made it a freely float floating fiat currency. And, and then in 1973, the other part of this is OPEC had an oil embargo. And that meant that the price of oil skyrocketed on the global market. So a year later, Richard Nixon sent his Treasury Secretary to Saudi Arabia to meet. And as 
Bloomberg put it in this historic meeting, the U.S. goal was to neutralize crude oil as an economic weapon and find a way to persuade Saudi Arabia to finance the U.S.'s widening deficit with its newfound petrodollar wealth. Again, that deficit was because of U.S. military spending, because of the empire the U.S. was building around the world. And Saudi Arabia became a critical player in helping to maintain the hegemony of the U.S. dollar and global demand for the U.S. dollar, which was a way of preventing the dollar from devaluing, despite the fact that the U.S. had this massive current account deficit, meaning the U.S. had a massive trade deficit. It was importing way more than it was exporting to the rest of the world. This map shows the countries of the world measured by their, their current account. So the countries that are in red have a current account deficit, meaning they import more than they export. And the countries in green have a current account surplus, meaning they export more than they import. And the United States consistently for decades has had a massive current account deficit, which normally means that its currency would devalue over time because the more you import, the more you weaken your currency. The more you export, the more you strengthen your currency. But because Saudi Arabia agreed to sell its oil as the world's largest oil producer exclusively in dollars, pressuring other countries to do so as well, it meant that countries around the world that import oil and other commodities had to get dollars in order to pay for that oil and other commodities. So that means that there was constant demand for the U.S. dollar. So that was the way by which the U.S. could maintain this massive current account deficit and import way more. And that's basically a way for the U.S. to extract wealth from the rest of the world and and basically pay no consequences for it. So it's an example of the U.S. having a free lunch. There are free lunches in economics, but they're a result of imperialism. This is a system of imperialism, and the U.S. maintained this system through military interventions, wars, organizing coups in independent countries, regime change operations, destabilizing anyone that challenged the hegemony of the U.S. dollar and the hegemony of the U.S. empire. And Saudi Arabia was a key player in this system. Bloomberg in this article said, they, they explained, the basic framework was strikingly simple. The U.S. would buy oil from Saudi Arabia and provide the kingdom military aid and equipment. In return, the Saudis would plow billions of their petrodollar revenue back into treasuries. That's U.S. Treasury securities. Those are IOUs. It's U.S. government debt. And that would finance the U.S.'s spending. So Saudi Arabia would use all of the dollars, the petrodollars. So those are the dollars it made by selling its oil. So if a country like Pakistan wanted to import oil from Saudi Arabia, Pakistan would have to get U.S. dollars. And then Pakistan... The Pakistani importers would get, would buy the oil from Saudi Arabia and give that those dollars to Saudi Arabia. And then Saudi Arabia would have all of these excess dollars. And what would they do with that? They would they would deposit those dollars in commercial banks in the United States and they would the central bank would use dollars to buy U.S. Treasury securities because if you just hold dollars in your bank account, there's no interest. So you're technically losing value over time. If you buy U.S. Treasury bonds, there's a, a set rate of interest. Well, there's a rate of interest that fluctuates depending on the market. So th that interest rate would give you a slight return. So the, the central bank of Saudi Arabia would hold its, central, its uh, foreign exchange reserves 
in dollars in the form of treasury securities. And then that's US government debt. And then the US government would use that money to fund its empire around the world. So Saudi Arabia has played a key role going back to the 1970s in maintaining the US empire by undergirding the power of the petrodollar. But that is rapidly changing. And this deal could be the, the nail in the coffin of the petrodollar. Saudi Arabia has publicly confirmed that it is considering selling its oil in other currencies rather than the US dollar. Saudi Arabia's finance minister confirmed this in January in an interview with Bloomberg. And it was the first time publicly that Saudi Arabia had admitted this, had acknowledged this. But there were many reports before then in which it was revealed that Saudi Arabia was considering selling oil to China in the Chinese currency, the renminbi or the yuan is the unit of that, that currency. And President Xi announced this, the Chinese president, when he took a historic trip to the Gulf region to Saudi Arabia in December 2022. On this trip, the Chinese president not only met with Saudi leadership, but he also met with the Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC, which represents the Persian Gulf states. And he also met with the Arab League. So this was, these were leaders from all across West Asia. And in this meeting, President Xi announced that they had made an agreement for China to buy both oil and gas from the Persian Gulf region, from which it imports over one third of its energy, not in dollars, but in yuan. This was reported by Reuters and Reuters quoted Xi saying, quote, China will continue to import large quantities of crude oil from GCC countries, expand imports of liquefied natural gas, and Qatar is the world's leading producer tied with the US. And she said that China is going to help expand oil and gas uh, development. And he said that they're going to, quote, make full use of the Shanghai Petroleum and Natural Gas Exchange as a platform to carry out yuan settlement of oil and gas trade. And that, that quote from Xi will go down in history potentially as the, the end of the petrodollar, or rather maybe not the end, it's a little hyperbolic. The petrodollar may continue in some ways, maybe a majority or a plurality of trade of oil and gas in the global market will still be done in dollars, but it will not be the only currency used to buy oil and gas. This is a significant blow to the hegemony of the US dollar and the petrodollar system. And now that Saudi Arabia and Iran have normalized relations, it's going to be another benefit for this attempt to challenge the petrodollar. Iran has already been doing trade with China in, in, in the Chinese currency, the renminbi, for a decade. BBC, in fact, reported back in 2012 that China was already buying oil from Iran with yuan. And that's, of course, because of the illegal U.S. sanctions on Iran, which violate international law. So Iran has really been at, at the forefront, leading the global campaign of de-dollarization, pushing for new currencies for international trade. It's taken a decade, but now even Saudi Arabia is joining as well. And that means that it's really going to be accelerating in the years to come. The Indian media reported in 2022 that Iran is also considering selling its oil in its own currency, the rial, 
which is a way of helping to try to stabilize its currency because in, in Iran has faced a lot of inflation because of the illegal U.S. sanctions against it, which the U.S. Uh, sanctions prevent Iran from getting hard currency like dollars, which makes it difficult for Iran to stabilize its currency in foreign exchange markets. And also the sanctions make it difficult for Iran to even operate in foreign exchange markets. So Iran is looking to do what Russia has been doing. Russia has been making its uh, customers who buy gas from Gazprom, it's the state-owned gas giant, pay in rubles. And now Iran is considering also asking for payment in its own currency, which is a way of also facilitating trade between Iran and other countries, because that means those other countries have to get the Iranian real, its currency, in order to buy the oil. So it's a way of encouraging trade with those countries. It's funny to go back and read articles from several years ago. This is a report in Reuters in 2018, and it, it was, was titled, I, Iran oil sanctions could advance China's petro yuan. And they note that China is positioned to be a chief beneficiary of the U.S. decision to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal, as it would give China leverage to demand oil imports be priced in yuan. Now, of course, this is Reuters it has been historically funded by the British government. It's been a Western propaganda mouthpiece. But so they portray China in, in a very uncharitable light. But it is true that ironically, the Obama administration, by negotiating the Iran nuclear deal and lifting some sanctions, although not all, all sanctions on Iran, it was a way for Iran to economically integrate a little bit with the West. And ironically, by the Donald Trump administration sabotaging that agreement and unilaterally withdrawing from that agreement against international law, it actually helped deepen Chinese and Iranian integration. We saw this alliance reach a whole new stage in 2021 when China and Iran signed a 25-year a strategic agreement estimated at $400 billion. And Forbes, the, the U.S. business website, referred to this as a power shift that threatens Western energy. And they note that this 25-year agreement signed between Beijing and Tehran includes discussion on, of, of cooperation on oil, gas, petrochemicals, renewable energy, nuclear power, uh, high-tech and military cooperation, port construction, and integration into the Belt and Road system. This is a map showing the, the Belt and Road Initiative. And of course, not only is Iran part of the Belt and Road, but also Saudi Arabia is part of the Belt and Road. And in, as part of China's attempt to integrate Asia economically, we see that both countries play an important ro uh, role as major ports. And now that the Persian Gulf region can be more stable because of this peace agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, it's also going to help facilitate the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, I should point out that I don't think it's a coincidence that China sponsored these peace talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran the, just a few weeks after Iran's president, Ibrahim Raisi, took a historic trip to Beijing. In fact, Raisi is the first Iranian leader who has visited China in 20 years. And this February, he met with Chinese President Xi Jinping. And if you go to the readout from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in China, they say several important things here that reflect China's uh, mentality here, what, what China was thinking and trying to increase its relations with Iran.
China says that it, has, it always views and develops relations with Iran from a strategic perspective. And no matter how the international and regional situation changes, China will remain steadfast in developing friendly cooperation with Iran and advancing a China-Iran comprehensive strategic partnership. By the way, that's the language that China also uses to refer to its comprehensive strategic partnership with Russia. So China clearly considers Iran one of its most important allies. And they say here clearly, they say, no matter how the international and regional situation changes. This is a reference to the fact that the US, that China knows that the U.S. has been trying to destabilize Iran and trying to encourage conflict between Iran and other countries in the region. And this is China saying that it doesn't it, it, China doesn't care about U.S. attempts to try to turn Iran to try to isolate Iran and turn Iran other countries in the region against Iran. China says, no, Iran is part of this region and it's an important ally of ours. Furthermore, Xi Jinping emphasized that China supports Iran in safeguarding its sovereignty, independence, territorial integrity, and national dignity. So that's China once again challenging the, the attempts by not only the U.S., but also by Israel to wage war on Iran, to violate Iran's sovereignty and independence. And China said that it, quote, supports Iran in resisting unilateralism and bullying opposes external forces interfering in Iran's internal affairs and undermining its security and stability and stands ready to continue to work with Iran to firmly support each other on issues concerning their core interests. So this is once again China saying that it opposes the attempt by the U.S. to destabilize Iran and by Israel to destabilize and wage war on Iran. And they talked about increasing their collaboration through a comprehensive cooperation plan in fields like trade, agriculture, industry, infrastructure. And China, of course, is working on expanding the Belt and Road Initiative. So this meeting in February between China, between President Xi and Iranian President Raisi was, I think, clearly the first step toward the meeting in March between Iran and Saudi Arabia negotiating peace. And again, this is all about integrating Asia, challenging the petrodollar, challenging U.S. hegemony and expanding the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, I mentioned the importance of Xi's historic visit to Saudi Arabia in December. Well, we should contrast that to U.S. President Joe Biden's trip to Riyadh in July of 2022. And that was widely seen as a diplomatic failure. Uh, there's this infamous photo of Biden fist bumping Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS. And we know that, that the U.S. was trying to pressure Saudi Arabia to increase oil production as the de facto leader of OPEC, because at this moment, the U.S. was dealing with a lot of consumer price index inflation. And this was in the lead up to the midterm elections in the United States. So Biden was trying to reduce inflation by increasing Saudi oil production, which would increase the supply of oil in the global market, which would decrease the price of oil. And when oil prices go up, it tends to increase consumer price index inflation in all other sectors like food and other and other products, because, of course, oil is so important for transport. So Biden was trying to pressure Saudi Arabia to increase oil production. And what was Saudi Arabia's response? No, we are not going to do so. And that angered Washington. 
and it only further uh, led to uh, a diplomatic crisis between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. This is part of growing tensions between Washington and Riyadh going back several years. In 2021, Saudi Arabia and Russia signed a military cooperation agreement. And this angered the United States, obviously, because the U.S. has been trying to, to isolate Russia. And in fact, in 2023, relations between Saudi Arabia and Russia grew even closer despite the attempt by the West to isolate Russia over the proxy war in Ukraine, the uh, Russian ambassador to Saudi Arabia announced that the countries may establish a strategic partnership, which is basically an alliance. And uh, Saudi Arabia has been buying Russian military equipment. So this is in general part of Saudi Arabia's move to diversify its international relations. Obviously, Saudi Arabia is not like a great anti-imperialist power. It still has a very reactionary monarchy. It's not joining the resistance axis along with Iran. Obviously not at all. But what this reflects is the growing multipolarity in the world. Saudi Arabia for decades had basically been a U.S. proxy regime, a client state. And now Saudi Arabia is maintaining an independent, non-aligned foreign policy. And not only Saudi Arabia, longtime U.S. allies like Egypt, and even Turkey, formerly known as Turkey, which is a member of NATO, even they are now maintaining more independent, non-aligned foreign policy. Both Egypt and Turkey have, have expressed interest in joining the BRIC system. So what we're seeing is that the U.S. is no longer the global imperial hegemon that can order countries around the world and tell them what to do. We're seeing a lot of countries, especially in Asia, who want to maintain relations with everyone and balance different sides with against each other and do what's in their own interest. And that's exactly what Saudi Arabia is doing. And now that Saudi Arabia and Iran have normalized relations with each other, they can continue integrating further. And while Saudi Arabia and Russia are increasing their relations, Bloomberg reported an incredible report in December 2022 titled Russia and Iran are building a trade route that defies sanctions. Iran and Russia are investing around $20 billion. This map shows that India is also a key part of this. Of course, India is part of the BRIC system along with Russia and China, and Iran has, has, has applied to join the BRICS, and Iran is now a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and India is also a member of that. And you can see that the the idea of the route, which is called the International North-South Transport Corridor, INSTC, and you can see that it will go from Mumbai up through Iran and then up to the north and continue going up into Russia and then will go west potentially to Europe, potentially if, if they want, although the existing trade route goes around through the... the um, the Balamanda, the Amandab Strait off of the coast of Yemen and goes up through the Suez Canal into the Mediterranean. So this is a way of further integrating Asia. And you could say Eurasia because Russia is part of it. But again, Russia has basically been kicked out of Europe. So this is all part of the process of Asian integration. And now that Saudi Arabia and Iran have normalized relations, it's just going to further provide more momentum for the process of Asian integration. This also comes at a time when Iran and Russia are integrating their financial systems. 
In fact, in January, the Iranian Central Bank announced that Iran and Russia had signed a deal to connect their national interbank communication and transfer systems to help boost trade and ease two-way bank transactions. 52 Iranian bank branches are involved, and they're going to be using Iran's local payment system, which is called SEPAM, S-E-P-A-M, and that they're going to integrate with 106 banks using Russia's system, which is the SPFS. And these are alternatives to the SWIFT system. The SWIFT system is the Belgium-based, Belgium US-dominated global interbank messaging system that the US has used as, a, as basically as a financial weapon. So anytime that, that a country does something that the US doesn't like, the US reserves the so-called right, even though it's against international law, to kick out countries with these illegal sanctions. The U.S. kicked Iran out. The U.S. kicked Venezuela out of SWIFT. And recently, the U.S. kicked several Russian banks out of the SWIFT system. So we see that Russia and Iran are integrating economically. They're integrating their financial systems. And at the same time, China and Russia are also economically integrating. They're doing trade with each other in their currencies. And the Chinese and Russian financial systems, bank systems, financial messaging systems are integrating as well. So this is all part of the project of Asian economic integration, challenging Western hegemony. Finally, I want to conclude this analysis addressing the stark difference in the way that China has dealt with this and the way that the U.S. has dealt with the same issue of conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran. I want to highlight this fact again. I need to really emphasize this that the U.S. government, the Donald Trump administration, murdered the top Iranian official Qasem Soleimani in January 2020. And when the U.S. killed him, it was with a drone strike. And what was Qasem Soleimani doing in Iraq? He was trying to negotiate peace talks between Iran and Saudi Arabia. This was admitted in mainstream media. This is a report from NPR from January 2020. And it quotes, it cites, the Iraqi Prime Minister, Adol Abdul Mahdi, he told Parliament that he was mediating between Iran and Saudi Arabia. He said Qasem Soleimani had been bringing a message from Iran for the Saudis on the day he was killed in Baghdad. So the U.S. government murdered a top Iranian official in order to prevent peace between Saudi Arabia and Iran. That is the perfect symbol of the difference between the United States and China. The U.S. wants more instability and violence and war, and China is trying to bring about peace and mutually beneficial cooperation. Obviously, China benefits from it as well, but it's based on China's concept of win-win cooperation, as opposed to the U.S. imperialist idea of zero-sum competition, where there's one winner and one loser. China says, no, we want a mutually, bene mutually beneficial win-win cooperation. We develop, they develop, we all win. The reason China can do that is because it has a socialist government that's not motivated simply by profit. Its goal is not simply to maximize short-term profit and dividends for shareholders. It is governed by a communist party that is motivated by its own national development project, and they have a larger ideology that is not simply based on extracting value and exploitation and capitalist, you know, theft and profit. So that is the fundamental distinction between the U.S. and China. And we see this so clearly reflected in the response from 
Washington's closest ally in the region, apartheid Israel. Israel is very angry about this peace agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Saudi, uh, Israel has been attacking it. Uh, the current far-right, extremely far-right Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and also other Israeli politicians have been attacking this because they don't want war. They, want, they don't want peace. They want war. They want instability. They don't want stability in the region. Israel wants war with Iran. And now that Iran and Saudi Arabia have normalized relations, this also throws a huge wrench into the gears of the U.S. strategy to try to control the region. Washington for years has been pressuring the Persian Gulf monarchies to normalize relations with apartheid Israel. And in 2020, the Trump administration managed to convince the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain to normalize relations with Israel in the so-called Abraham Accords. And, and the part of the, so the attempt was to unite the Arab states against Iran using sectarian ideology and supporting Salafi jihadist extremist groups to try to attack Shia, demonizing Shia. There was all this propaganda. And, and for seven years, Saudi Arabia and Iran did not have formal diplomatic relations since 2016. But now that, that strategy has failed. Like I said earlier, I don't expect Iran and Saudi Arabia to become friends and allies, but the fact that they're not at war with each other, the fact that they recognize each other is a very significant development. It's going to be beneficial to Iraq, a country that has suffered from that conflict, to Yemen, potentially bringing an end to this horrific war in Yemen that the U.S. has backed, in which Saudi Arabia has been brutally bombing Yemen killing thousands, hundreds of thousands of civilians, unleashing the world's worst humanitarian catastrophe. This could hopefully be a way to stop that war. It could be a way to help provide reconstruction for Syria. The U.S. has destabilized this region with war and intervention and meddling so long with the support of Israel. And now the region is finally being able to have peace and diplomatic relations with each other it's a massive blow to U.S. hegemony. It's a blow to Israeli attempts at dividing the region. And it shows the new multipolar world we're in. And there cannot be a bigger difference between the way that the U.S. negotiates its so-called di diplomacy and the way China negotiates diplomacy. The U.S. pushes for more war and instability, whereas China pushes for peace and stability and economic development. The difference could, be not, could not be any starker. And I will conclude saying that I think this truly is a geopolitical game changer, not only in terms of the politics, but especially the economics of the region and the world. It is yet another blow to the petrodollar, to U.S. dollar hegemony, to U.S. imperialism, and the, it, it represents another step in this phase toward building a multipolar world. I am Ben Norton. This is Geopolitical Economy Report. If you like the reporting and analysis that we do here, please consider supporting our work over at geopoliticaleconomy.com support. And you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash geopoliticaleconomy. We are completely independent. We have no big donors and no big uh, institutional support. So any, any support that you can provide goes a long way. I want to thank everyone for watching or listening. 
There's always a video version of these episodes and a podcast version if you prefer listening. So thank you for, as always, supporting us, and I'll see you next time.